Hello, welcome to Blunderphonics, where we put music's most troubled productions to tape. I'm Jack Durback. What's up? My name's Spencer Faust. And today we are going to be talking about a legend. We are talking about Smile by the Beach Boys. Not Bigfoot. Not big shit. I did all. I brought all the wrong notes. <laughs> Damn it. Well, smile by Bigfoot will be next episode. Uh, hold on. Okay. No, I have sparse notes. They're underneath these ones. All right. That's what's <laughs> gonna suck on my end. Spencer, tell me a little bit about what you know about the Beach Boys and what you know about the Smile Sessions. So I have uh, I have some context for this one. Episode like 11, 10 or eleven of the Cock and Bull goes into Eugene Landy, and he is my biggest window into the Beach. Boys. Boys. I know that they're they're that, you know, bubblegum pop kind of band, California boys. Most of them are brothers, right? Yes, they're all brothers and Mike Love is their cousin. Mm-hmm. Their father, their collective father was was uh, very much a Joe Jackson, but a little less uh, punchy. <laughs> a little less punchy and <laughs> he was a little bit more supportive of the band's ambition. Like he was still an asshole, but like he wasn't an asshole just because he wanted his sons to succeed, so... I could kind of see his point of view. And and being creative types, uh, one of the biggest visionaries for the band, Brian Wilson, was a vulnerable and sick man at peak points of success for the band, and it, it, it led to a whole lot of shit going down. So I would love to get into Smile, which in my opinion epitomizes Beach Boy turmoil. Oh my god, this is pretty much the pivoting point to Brian Wilson really going off the deep end. Uh, he always sort of struggled with mental illness upon looking through Smile and some of the brief back background behind it he's always sort of had panic attacks and he really didn't like people all that much he didn't like performing it really wore him out he was very much a visionary in terms of being a producer Uh, you would look at for example pet sounds one of the greatest pop albums of the 60s and i think that's almost inarguable because of just how lush it sounds you compare that to any other album other than by the Beatles, and it just towers above them. That's what he liked to do. He liked to kind of get away from that surf music that his dad kind of forced on them. He didn't want to be... Mm -hmm. He didn't want to just be singing about surfing all the time, just like how the Beatles got sick of singing about teenage girls, and they wanted to instead sing about walruses and shit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and who can and Lord of the Rings, and who can blame them? Exactly, yeah. After the release of Pet Sounds, the album itself, it's kind of their most well-known and their best-selling album among the rest of the ones they've released. At the time, it wasn't that successful, but that didn't seem to really phase Brian. He was more focused on being a producer and the rest of the band was like oh man pet sounds you know we really liked it but it was a little weird it didn't really sell all that well brian was like nope it was great we're gonna keep doing better and one of the main things that kept brian wilson down this path of doing weird shit that didn't have the capability of selling that well was the beatles the beatles were constantly popular but they were also getting away with doing all this weird shit that Brian Wilson wanted to do. What's what's the time frame? Like, were, were they operating at the same time? I kind of forget. It is pretty much a 1v1 fight in terms of timing. <laughs> like, around the same time, Revolver came out by the Beatles, which featured Eleanor Rigby, Yellow Submarine, Taxman. Some of their first songs where they got away from being a boy band and being, like, masters at production. That was around the same time that Pet Sounds came out. So mm-hmm. they were pretty much, every time the Beatles released an album, that was around the same time Brian Wilson created something and the Beach Boys released it. And pretty much, Smile started around the same time Sgt. Pepper was being rumored. The music press was saying, hey, the Beatles are working on something that's going to be even wackier than Revolver. And Brian's like, oh, shit. So they were actually, they were neck and neck. Yes. And Brian didn't care that the Beatles were doing this necessarily. He, in fact, was inspired by them trying to push pop further. What his problem was, was he felt that the Beach Boys and his vision was way more advanced than the Beatles, and nobody else knew it but him. So when he heard about this follow-up, Sgt. Pepper, he's like, I need to get out my masterpiece before them, or else everyone's going to think the Beatles are better than us. It's going to cement our legacy. And Pet Sounds was already out by this point, right? Yes, Pet Sounds came out in May 16th, 1966. And that was that was absolutely the, the album where they like dipped their toe into psychedelic. It is seen as them being very experimental and being associated with all this psychedelic experience. At this point, Brian Wilson was using a lot of psychedelic drugs, mostly marijuana and hash. He was using that to essentially experience ego death, where he was just completely separate from his body and he could experience utter joy. 
So Pet Sounds, while not entirely psychedelic, it definitely you could definitely hear a lot of that more weird hippie influence in that record compared to like Barbara Ann or Little Deuce Coop, where they're singing about cars <laughs> and tits. It's a lot different. When you start singing about God and like how, how you're on a pirate ship, Sloop John B, you're like, oh, I'm on a sailboat now, and now there are animals barking in my ear. Yeah, it's a little psychedelic. <laughs> it's a step in the other direction, yeah. Definitely. Pet Sounds actually came out before Revolver. Revolver came out on the 5th of August, 1966. It was essentially a race from then on, because Revolver is kind of seen as something that battles against Pet Sounds for the best album of 1966. So Brian Wilson, despite not being nearly as successful as John Lennon and Paul McCartney, Smile was going to be the best album ever made. And he started off by purchasing $3,000 worth of marijuana and hash. That's a fucking lot the, of drugs. I like that he budgeted it, though. He was, I'm not going to be taking trips. I'm not going to, you know, run out and have to go get more. I'm I'm laying out my foundation right now. Well, if you buy in bulk, you save a lot of money. <laughs> exactly. And this was, this was Costco's origin story. So, yeah, he went to Costco and bought a shit ton of drugs. Because mm -hmm. he really enjoyed where Pet Sounds was going, and he thought that the more he went into this druggy atmosphere, the better the product was going to be. Which, you know, it would have helped if not everyone else really enjoyed the marijuana and hash. Oh, there's moochers. Unfortunately, uh, drugs are kind of addicting. Well, this is the first I've heard of it. <laughs> Everyone was high as a kite during the production of Smile, with the exception of Al Jardine, who just thought it was the most disgusting thing. He was like, everyone's on drugs, nobody's doing anything. And nobody's fucking surfing, no one's banging chicks, this is stupid. <laughs> and <laughs> The band I knew was gone. Brian kept surrounding himself with either people who were high on drugs, or businessmen who were trying to kind of serve their best self-interests so mm. on one hand you have mm. businessmen trying to be like oh yeah this is going to sell really well brian you should keep doing that and everyone who was working on the album was sleeping or snacking mm -hmm. and normally you would at least be able to corral some songs together out of this a lot of rock bands nowadays and back then were high on drugs having sex, and they still would release albums. That normally isn't the sole factor in an album not being made. Right. Brian Wilson, however, wanted to push music further at the same time of being really, really high. He was experimenting with something he called modules, where he wouldn't go in and record a song front to back, get all the people in the studio at the same time and record it, get several takes. He would go in and he would record instruments separately. And at a later point, he'd go back to a different studio, which he thought had a better sound, a better vibe, and record different instruments. And he pretty much focused entirely on instrumental variations and almost no vocals. Now, why, if he had a studio with a better sound, why wasn't he doing all the instruments at that studio? A good, good vibes only. He was getting a lot of different sounds from doing different studios, different... He just wanted to see which studios sounded the best and explore through that. And despite the fact that he had his own studio in his living room, he wanted to still go to different studios and be like, this one sounds cool for brass instruments, for example. I want to go do that. And because everything was so segmented and there was no finished product after spending tons of money at different studios, the songs were almost never finished. And nobody really had a good idea of where they were going, including Brian Wilson himself. I find this really, really fascinating because nowadays this is exactly how music works with digital technology. Yeah. People record the drums first, then the bass, the guitars. So that was outside the norm. Like that wasn't the way it was done back then. He was literally doing it the way we do it now, but it didn't work because they still had to edit everything manually. They had to cut tape apart and mm. glue it together. And because of that, it sucked putting songs together. And when Brian Wilson doesn't even know what his final song is going to sound like, when he's not sure they just ended up with literally 40 plus hours i think 50 plus hours of recorded music 50 out hang on and is that is that just saying like individually all the instrument parts total up to 50 hours of stuff all of the instrumentals whatever vocals they had at the time 50 hours worth of music 
Man, that even okay, even if it's all broken into different chunks, that is still mind-boggling because it's I take a five-minute song, bust it into five different pieces. That's twenty-five minutes. Uh, still, that's wild. That's it, just wild. It got incredibly expansive. There were songs all over the place, but Brian still had a vision. He had all of these weird sounds on the floor, but he at least knew that three songs in particular were going to be the lead singles and the best parts of Smile. Those songs being Good Vibrations, which mm-hmm. did see a release in 1966 before yeah. Sgt. Pepper came out. And that song is kind of seen as Smile boiled down to one singular song. It was sort of like a preview of things to come. It was very weird, segmented, but it was still very much a pop song. I was going to say, I, I guess it's weird. It is based on how you're describing it, what would probably be the most tame song on that album. Exactly. It was a very easy one for them to release, make some money off of it, and sort of ease people into the waters. Sure. Okay. Sure. Uh, The other two songs that he had high hopes for were Heroes and Villains, which was another very accessible song in terms of the rest of the songs on the album of Smile, and Vegetables which was a satire about physical fitness. Which is, I think, ironic because around this time, Brian Wilson uh, had ballooned about three times his size (laughs) when when he started being a musician. There were times where he would just flat out spend the entire day in bed eating candy bars, yes. Yeah. I'm not one Uh, to judge. Smile itself. You can spend a ton of time just combing through exactly how things happened when certain songs were recorded when Brian Wilson was doing one thing or the other, and I highly recommend if any of you listening don't know the full story of Smile, it's a rabbit hole. We're not going to touch the surface of all the shit that went down, but I would love to focus on specifically why this album didn't work, because that's much more interesting than they were all high and making a bunch of shit before digital technology allowed them to do such. But let's just drop the sentence that Charles Manson makes his way into that story. Just (laughs) (laughs) so crazy just how much went wrong with this album. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, you know, we could talk about, like, the Beatles' White Album and stuff and Charles Manson involved in that, and that band sort of disintegrating with that album. None of it comes close to this. This album was like a nuclear bomb of the psyche when it comes to Brian Wilson. I don't know, Spencer, do you know anything about specifically what happened with Smile itself in Brian Wilson's psyche? Well, I know Brian became uh, emotionally unstable. He was being manipulated. He was damaging his financial future, his creative future, all of that. I mean, Smile, as far as I understand, it was the straw that broke the camel's back for him. Yeah, Smile is kind of seen as the beginning of the end in a lot of ways. Uh... The drugs, I think, are the biggest thing that really tore him away from the band. Uh, The rest of the band, while most of them were also on drugs, they saw that it affected him differently. He started to become much more paranoid and panicked about a lot of weird different things. Yeah, it's almost like it's almost like (laughs) illicit drugs don't work very well with mental illness. It's almost like that's not a hot combo. It's shocking that you bring that up because I think you might be onto something. I was thinking about that myself. It's my thesis. It's my thesis. (laughs) It was very hard for the band to sort of witness Brian Wilson's deteriorating mental state. uh, Because at the time, mental illness, especially for a bunch of young kids at their age, they're all in their very early 20s. They were younger than us right now Mm -hmm. doing this. Uh, They didn't realize what was going on. They just knew Brian Wilson was going wacky. He built... Ignorant, they're in a malleable, they're they're in a I mean, listen, the decade they were in wasn't a great one for, you know, addressing mental health. And it certainly wasn't a great one in terms of being careful with drugs. No, yeah, it was a it was a hot cocktail of horrible circumstances, and your your end result is Brian Wilson and his life falling apart. That's exactly right. You would have a lot of the band becoming increasingly concerned. Uh, Brian Wilson, most notably, in my opinion, in his home studio, built a sandbox with a solitary piano in the middle of it and composed a lot of his music at the time in there with lyricist Van Dyke Parks. I almost want to think that's some a stone-cold sober decision he would make, too. That's a very <laughs> Beach Boys move. 
And I'm surprised that his wife was just like, yeah, okay, that's fine. Just build the sandbox there. Uh, I know his wife was not a fan of the drugs, but obviously that didn't stop Brian from building a sandbox. It's hard to find which parts of Brian Wilson his wife was a fan of. <laughs> it's, when you start when you start looking at that book, it's a little hard. <laughs> uh but he was collaborating extensively with Van Dyke Parks, a lyricist who also worked with the band on Pet Sounds. And he also was becoming increasingly concerned with how the band was reacting to Smile, especially Mike Love, uh, Brian Wilson's cousin and kind of seen as the Yoko Ono of the Beach Boys in terms of the fan circle. He was the one that kind of steered the band back into being old men singing about surfing and girls. Hell yeah. He was much more aligned with the Beach Boys being successful by writing songs about cars and the beach. He was in the same mentality as uh, the band's father, uh, Murray Wilson. Yeah. And he especially just thought this was wacko shit, <laughs> pretty much. And Van Dyke Parks, while a great lyricist and one of the main reasons why Pet Sounds did so well, he saw that and he pretty much left the prog uh, the process of making the album within a couple months due to not wanting to make friction with the band. He saw himself as an outsider that might have been contributing to this. And when he left, that was pretty much the one person who was trying to corral all of this together. When Van Dyke Parks left, Brian Wilson was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just doing a bunch of weird shit and I don't know how to put this together. And he sort of became unraveled by the project after Van Dyke Parks left. So apart from that, another huge thing that happened was Brian Wilson believing in everything coming to get him. Paranoia set in and he started to believe in a lot of weird, weird things. My favorite one was that he believed that his girlfriend at the time, which I think he was cheating mm -hmm. on his wife, if it's his girlfriend at the time. That tracks. He believed that his girlfriend at the time was starting to dabble in witchcraft, which I'm shocked that people believed in witchcraft in the 60s. I thought we were kind of done with that Brian. like a hundred years prior. Brian? <laughs> I don't know. I've had girlfriends where sometimes I'm like... Are are they of the occult? I don't know. I mean, that's like, you figure that out by date three. If if he's been with this girl for a while, come on, you shouldn't still be wondering. It's either a yes or no. <laughs> when he was working on songs such as The Element Fire, he was working on a song that was supposed to compromise of the four different elements, earth, wind, fire, and air. Uh, only one- Rip off. <laughs> Rip off. <laughs> earth, wind, and fire would like a word. <laughs> Hey, they came later. It's fine. It's all fine. Are you sure? Yes. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> so if anything, they ripped him off. He worked on fire. And if you've ever heard the song, it's a fucking nightmare. As he was making this song, he started hearing about fires going on in the neighborhood of the studio. I mean, yeah, that happens. And he was very much inspired by the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. So between knowing that great fire story, basing a song off of that... And working on that song in the same vicinity of a bunch of other house fires, he started believing that he was psychic. And he was causing these house fires by making the song. <sighs> Brian, you're writing about a very common ailment that afflicts uh, especially the state you're living in, California. I just, I... <laughs> <laughs> he thought he was like a pyromancer. Like a, yeah, a telekinetic pyromancer. No, it makes sense. And yet he's also worried that his girlfriend might be a witch. Meanwhile, he's clearly a warlock. All right, that's fine. <laughs> May yeah. yeah, maybe he was being a little bit hypocritical there if he was causing these fires. But yeah, he was terrified. He thought he was responsible. And who knows, maybe if he started working on the element water, there would be a huge flood and California would be drowned. If he started working on air, tornadoes would strike. He didn't want maybe to test Maybe fixing it. some droughts. Uh, <laughs> it might cause another dust bowl. That that wouldn't be great. But oh my God. He, he, I mean, he's got to do it in the right series of events and then it works. <laughs> Fire first, then water, then air than dirt. He was absolutely terrified during the creation of the song Fire, and he would think, you know, how does one protect himself from his own pyromancy? How do you protect your bandmates from pyromancy? I got it. Toy fire hats. He went to the band and said, put these on so I don't light you on fire. <laughs> the, Brian, Brian, the firefighters have hoses. It's not the hats that are, that are wards against flame. <laughs> Uh, needless to say, the rest of the band thought that was weird, and they were becoming 
incredibly uncomfortable. Well, did they at least wear the hats? I think they did. I think they okay. were just like, okay, Brian has an idea. It's weird, but Pet Sounds was kind of awesome. Let's <laughs> let's just if we put just him keep on. Doing his crazy bullshit. Money seems to follow. Well, it's weird because money didn't really follow. It was <laughs> it was weird because Pet Sounds didn't sell all that well at first, and they were like, okay, he wants to make art. We'll do it for the art. The only one who was really, really against this was Mike Love. He didn't even like pet sounds. He thought that was weird hippie shit, and he wanted to get back to the cars. So he's like, fuck these fire hats. Brian, what are you doing? <laughs> Mike's like, Brian, I was fine indulging your mental illness when it made me money, but not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> not anymore. Now that it's unproductive bullshit, not anymore. Uh, Brian, in his head, thought he was making music that would invoke joy and happiness and innocence. And flames. And flames, apparently. And flames. But the rest of the band was like, this is going backwards, Brian. You are kind of going off the deep end a little bit. But it wouldn't stop there. No, no, no. It would not stop there. Brian, this is all the opposite of cars and chicks. (laughs) He would start to dive into things like astrology. And... Mm -mm. (laughs) But it's really not because he started to believe in just being psychic. He wanted to learn everything he possibly could about any point of view. He would just as much be inspired by astrology as he would with, for example, Russia and China relations. Somebody told him about that and he's like, I want to make a song that invokes political relations between two completely different countries. I want to put that into this music. And because he wasn't writing any words, he was just like, eh, that'll inspire me. Ooh, I like the stars. I'm going to use that. My girlfriend's a witch. I'm going to use this. Brian Wilson's a chaotic neutral bard. I'm just going to say it. (laughs) His compass lies nowhere. He just wants to create. He doesn't care what happens. (laughs) He really believed that all of these things were going to influence him in some way. And he was inspired. But the rest of the band was like, dude, you're making no sense. This is going crazy. He would start to also fear his competitors. And I don't mean the Beatles. I mean Phil Spector and his father, Murray Wilson. He started to believe that these two, who were both well-known producers and musicians in their own right, he started to believe that they were spying on him. And they were trying to find this secret music that he was working on and leak it to the press and leak it to other bands and essentially have somebody make Smile before he could finish it. He started hiring his own private investigators to watch Phil Spector and his father to see if he was being spied on. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Phil Spector. He is a well-known producer in the 60s. Mm -hmm. He's most most known for working with the Beatles during Let It Be and then some of the other Beatles albums that came after they broke up. Um, But he was most well known for his song at the time, Be My Baby by the Ronettes, which sounds like a lame song, but it was one of the most, I love the song personally, but it is pretty much like a girl group song, but it was the most well-produced song ever created. It was almost the birth of the wall of sound movement, which we talked about with Loveless For 1966, the song sounded immaculate, and it sounded huge. It sounded like these drums were literally punching you in the face. It sounded like there was an entire orchestra behind the band, when in reality, all it was was drenched in reverb. But Mm -hmm. at the time, that wasn't something anyone's heard of before. Brian Wilson, literally, when he heard that song, pulled over and had a psychological breakdown. When the chorus came in, he pulled over and screamed, how the fuck is this real? And I think ever since, he believed that Phil Spector was his arch rival. And whenever he was doing something important in music, Phil Spector was secretly watching him to steal his work. <laughs> Phil Spector. I, and, 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 and that was true, obviously. Of course, that was true. Phil Spector famously said that he wished he had a nickel for every joint that Brian Wilson smoked, being paranoid of how good he was. God, oh, Phil. (laughs) Phil, the man's life is falling apart. Just a side note, Phil is currently in jail because of shooting an actress in the head in 2003. That's where he is right now, if you're wondering where he's at. Oh, Philip. uh, I would say Brian Wilson won that long time battle eventually. I mean, Brian Wilson didn't kill anybody, as far as I know. (laughs) Now, Phil did say that she shot herself in the head, but I don't know. Tell me more about our good buddy, Brian. Another one of the things that really, really hyped up Brian Wilson's paranoia 
was a movie called Seconds. It was at the Cannes Film Festival in 1966, featured Rock Hudson. Uh, Spencer, do you know anything about the movie Seconds? It's kind of a cult movie, but I don't know if you'd know it. I know nothing about this. I've never heard of this. It's pretty much your typical 60s sci-fi movie. It's about an... Oh, bad. Okay. No, no. I think it's actually considered good. I haven't actually watched it myself, um, but I know it's very slow, and it's about middle-aged people feeling like they need a second chance and getting their minds essentially put into a younger person's body. That's the basic plot line. It's kind of interesting in that way. One of the interesting things about this movie is that one of the producers, one of the investors, was Phil Spector. And... <laughs> no. <laughs> and Rock Hudson's character was put into a young body, and his new name was Tony Wilson. No. Brian Wilson walked into the theater and heard, Come in, Mr. Wilson. And he freaked the fuck out, sat and watched the movie, realized it was about taking young murdered people and having the older generation implant their brain into these younger people and immediately thought that Phil Spector was saying, we're going to get you and never watched a movie again until 1982 where he watched E.T. and probably liked it like everyone else in the world. He was terrified. <laughs> he was just he was like, that's me and I'm going to die. People are going to drill into my brain. The ending of the movie features a vague memory of people enjoying life on a beach. No. Fading away. And he's like, that's me! I wrote about the beach! That's fading away! Oh my I'm god! I'm the beach boy! I am the beach boy! Holy shit, the ending of the movie is literally the beach going away. That's me! That's Mr. Wilson! I'm gonna die! Good. There's not a- there is not a worse set of circumstances. There really fucking isn't. Oh my god. Yeah, I'm gonna probably- Phil Spector's just wringing his fucking hands together like, Yes! Yes! My plan to defeat the Beach Boys is coming together! Yes! Brian just was constantly thinking Phil was trying to one-up him. And no, Phil Spector was not spying on him. But I think something that really fucked with Brian was his private investigator did believe that, yes, he was being spied on by his father. His own father was, in fact, looking into the band because they had since kind of separated him from managing the band. They were doing their own thing, and he was not a fan of Pet Sounds or anything like that. And his father did hire people to watch the band and see what they were doing after Pet Sounds which freaked Brian Wilson the fuck out. I mean, it would freak me the fuck out, but I also didn't, I wasn't raised in the 70s, so. <laughs> that shit sounds perfectly normal, actually. On top of that, he was believing that things he was doing during the smile sessions were being leaked, and they were. The master tapes for good vibrations were stolen by somebody for three days, and while they eventually got them back, Brian started to believe any other music that came out that was even close to Smile <laughs> was stolen from him, was stolen from him, or they heard what he was doing and said, you know what, we're going to do it before him. We're going to be better than him before he has a chance to get it out there. He truthfully believed that his music was so amazing that if anyone heard it, they would instantly become better. And he did not want that to happen. So he believes that he has he. Uh, he has magical music. He literally felt like he was making a teen symphony to God. These, this is a quote. He believed he was making incredibly spiritual music that would give you powers, such as lighting houses on fire if he made something dark, like the elemental fire song. Uh -huh. Just as much as he believed people who heard good vibrations would instantly become better, and they would instantly start making the same kind of music, and it terrified him. And I, These vibrations he's made are too good. He's, he's, he hasn't checked his power. He, he fully believed in this power of good vibrations, literally. And at one point, he went to an astrologist who said in his future, there were going to be some hostile vibrations. He would constantly stop going to studios. He would spend $3,000 on a studio and then just immediately cancel it, which that was a lot of money back then. He would just cancel it and say it was because that studio had bad vibrations. The rest of the band would be like, that was a lot of money you just threw away. He said, I don't care. Not working there. Bad vibrations, my dude. So money-wise, are they working on a studio's allowance or on a, on a label's allowance? They were working on Capitol Records money. Capitol Records is okay. a, a huge record label. They mm -hmm. weren't necessarily concerned about incredible expenses because they were believing in Brian Wilson 
And at the time, the band was sort of undergoing a lot of publicity. They actually hired old Beatles manager, uh, old Beatles publicist to sort of revitalize their image in the wake of Pet Sounds being considered kind of a masterpiece. And a lot of music press was saying, Brian Wilson is a genius. His work is going to rival the Beatles. It's going to possibly be better. We're going to see who's going to win. Brian Wilson is a sorcerer. Brian Wilson causes <laughs> fires. A lot Beware of Brian Wilson. Don't steal his content. It's the Ark of the Covenant. Your face will melt. A lot of the publicity during the creation of the record did not cover any of that. That was all known immediately afterwards. A lot of music press believe that the Beach Boys were rivals to the Beatles and that they can possibly beat them in this race of creating a masterpiece follow-up. In this musical arms race, yes. Yeah. However, despite spending a lot of Capitol's money, Brian Wilson and the rest of the band actually wanted to get away from them. Capitol Records was still giving them money. They thought the ideas were a little wacky, but the Beach Boys wanted to make their own record label called Brothers Records and actually sued Capitol Records. Okay. And All right. They said War of Independence. I like it. They wanted $255,000. That's equal to almost 2 million today. Sure. Because they weren't paying royalties and they wanted not only their money, but they wanted to be released from their contract. This may seem just like the band taking a stand. This might seem like just in the grand scheme of smile, that's not that huge of a deal. However, independent record labels did not really do as well in the 60s. And even if they were to get out of the contract, they were making the album under Capitol's money. And there might have been a lot of legality issues with who gets to release it. Yeah, that's fair. No. That's fair. If it was originally made under Capitol's money, I mean, would they get the rights to the album once it was finished? Uh, eventually, they did get $200,000, but they reached an agreement that Brother Records could exist and just release things under Capitol Records as an umbrella. Like, Capitol Records would help them with their independent record label as long as they produced a million dollar profit. Almost sounds like a movie setup. You've got to make a million bucks. Needless to say, because Smile did not release, they did not generate a good profit from it at all. And in fact, it was their follow-up Smiley Smile was their least successful album ever at the time. And regardless of how this lawsuit turned out, the fact that they had to go through these legality issues with Capitol Records meant that Smile, even if it was finished, was not going to be released until Sgt. Pepper. The Beatles were going to release Sgt. Pepper first because of this lawsuit, delaying things even further. The songs weren't even finished, and they had a legality to deal with. They had legal issues. Sgt. Pepper was going to come out. Brian Wilson got to hear what the Beatles were working on during the creation of Smile in his car. Where bad, bad breakdowns happen normally when he hears music. Whenever he turns on the radio, it terrifies him, really. He, and he should stop, but he won't. He turned on the radio and he heard what the Beatles were working on with Strawberry Fields Forever. He literally pulled over, mm -hmm. completely silent. He turned to who was in his car at the time, I think one of the Beach Boy members, um, and he said, they beat us to it. They're doing exactly what we're doing, but they did it first. They won. His passenger laughed it off because it was incredibly uncomfortable. And then he started. I'm sure. <laughs> and then Brian started laughing back maniacally. And then they continued on. Brian Wilson to this day asserts that no, Strawberry Fields Forever did not break him mentally. But there are some people that say otherwise. So not only were the Beatles doing what they were doing, they were on the same wavelength. But the Beatles did it first. And he believed Strawberry Fields Forever was a much better attempt at what he was trying to do. And it really, even though he says it didn't cripple him, Sgt. Pepper came out. Smile didn't. <laughs> That's all I really need to say. Yeah. And and for a guy who thought everyone was stealing his content and, and knew for a fact that the Beatles had just done what he wanted to do and did it first... Yeah, no, I'm uh, I'm really not taking his word for it on that one. I, I feel like this man is on his last sheet of ice. He started becoming very concerned about, because the Beatles were being very, very well-received, still incredibly more successful than the Beach Boys, doing the same shit as they're doing, but better, Brian started to lose confidence in his project. He started believing that maybe doing all of this crazy, ambitious stuff doesn't matter anymore because the Beatles beat us to it. He was like, you know what? I'm going to work on Heroes and Villains. I'm going to release it and see what people think. 
I really believe in heroes and villains at least. Gave it to a record DJ. They listened to it. Laughed him out. They said, what the fuck is this? Get this out of here. And it shattered him. The more people listened to heroes and villains, the more people hated it. Jimi Hendrix famously said when he heard it, he said it was shit. And he said it sounded like a psychedelic barbershop quartet. And it was whack. Okay, I'm glad you added the end part. Because I was like, otherwise, that's just a fair assessment of the Beach Boys. (laughs) No, it's exactly what it was. But people just thought it was weird. They thought the Beach Boys were not doing nearly as well as the Beatles with this weird psychedelic music. And everyone else in the band, as they saw people hate more and more of Smile, started wondering why release it like it is. This isn't going to be successful. And Brian Wilson slowly realized that. And he realized Smile isn't good. He thought that it just was not going to be well met. He thought that even if he fully believed in it, which he was losing faith in, it wouldn't do well. And they would be fucked in terms of how much money they were going to make. They were going to be fucked in their capital agreement because they weren't making enough money. Mm -hmm. And it pretty much fell apart because of that. Eventually, Smile was canceled. Brian said, this is too ambitious. Computers don't allow me to do digital editing right now. He didn't actually say that, but... You know, he does say that now. The world is not ready for me. (laughs) Pro Tools hasn't been invented yet. I can't do what I want. And the project was canceled. He said it was too ambitious. The Beatles already beat me. We should at least release something for Capitol Records because we promised. Let's make a watered down remake of it called Smiley Smile. Just get it out. And they did. And Smiley Smile was considered a instead of a grand slam by the band um a lot of people were confused they were like hey you were making a masterpiece this is kind of weird it's not that great though it's not as great as everyone was saying so are these people that like you know were going off the hype of smile was that even a thing was there was there a hype train going for smile they're like oh this this is going to be brian wilson thinks he's gonna fucking start natural disasters with this thing and fix russia china so (laughs) people yeah music press was heavily hyped by smile they were very much looking forward to how the beach boys were going to combat the beatles and when sergeant pepper came out they're like holy fucking shit sergeant pepper's amazing let's see what the beach boys have smiley smile comes out and they said oh that's what they had Mm. and they pretty much wrote it off watered down defeat all right brian Right. I'm going to go back to what John's got for me. (laughs) Yeah, it pretty much cemented the fact that the Beatles were the greatest band of all time. And the Beach Boys were a one shot, a one shot artistic band that just could not do the same thing the Beatles could. And pretty much Smiley Smile asserted to Brian Wilson that Smile just should not have been made. They released Smiley Smile. It was their least selling album to date and they pretty much said okay we have all these songs let's just move away from it if we're ever creatively bankrupt we'll just redo a smile song and basically throughout the rest of the beach boys career you can see little segments of where smile used to be they would release songs like do it again surfs up and uh wonderful and people would be like wait that was supposed to be on smile they release it years later they would remake it whatever by the way, Surf's Up is not a surfing song. It's sort of a tongue-in-cheek where the Beach Boys get it, and it's actually a very melancholic piano ballad. <laughs> Just in case if you thought that was pretty cute. I really I really did think that was cute. I was like, ah, they're back. They're back to the beach, but nope. <laughs> but they would release three months after Smiley Smile, Wild Honey, which was considered a Beach Boys soul record because Brian Wilson eventually grew to hate Smile. He thought it was a soulless, experimental record where he really just wanted to do weird shit without any purpose, and there was absolutely no heart in it. And Wild Honey was pretty much his version of making super soul music to combat the fact that he was full of bad vibrations, in his own words. And that album also wasn't very successful, and pretty much the Beach Boys would never really find great success ever again really except for kokomo which sucks ass (laughs) usually we would just end it here and just not talk about the album because neither it wasn't finished it wasn't really released properly it was Mm -hmm. kind of released piecemeal throughout the years however there are two more important things to sort of discuss 
with a smile. One being the article, Goodbye Surfing, Hello God. This was written by author Jules Siegel, who was with the band throughout I know, it sounds goofy. <laughs> it sounds goofy as hell. <laughs> but it's about the religious conversion of Brian Wilson. And Jules was with Brian Wilson throughout most of the recording of Smile. And because of Jules and this article, which was kind of seen as super pro Beach Boys, and it wasn't really published in the magazine he used to work for. It was published in Cheetah, which doesn't exist anymore. It was probably some pulpy magazine. Um, he actually worked for the Saturday Evening Post, and they didn't publish this because they're like, eh, this is too pro Beach Boys. Because of how in-depth Jules went with how crazy Brian Wilson was during all this time, that's how everyone found out how wacky Smile was. Because of this article alone, it's why Smile became a legend. Most people would have just considered Smiley Smile what Smile was supposed to be. They would have considered it a disappointment and moved on with their lives. But because of this article, people were like, holy shit. Whatever album this was, it must have destroyed Brian Wilson's brain. We have to hear this. And throughout <laughs> decades, people would find bootlegs of whatever was being leaked through the studios at the time. They would find bootlegs of what it was supposed to sound like. They would hear weird instrumentals that were supposed to come from Smile. They would hear these new songs coming out and they'd be like, that was supposed to be on it. And fans would start to try to compile what they believed Smile was supposed to be. It became one of the most famous bootlegged albums of all time because you couldn't buy the actual version. All you had were these bootleg copies that people were hobbling and cobbling together. That is just so cool to me. That is just so cool. And it's something that you would never see in this age, I feel like. There's something so... I don't know. There's something so appeal alluring about the, the lost media culture. You know what I mean? And this was before the internet. Like, the fact yeah. that a lot of these bootlegs, even like in the 80s and 90s, the fact that people still had these copies of what was essentially... A forbidden fruit of artistic creativity was crazy to me. And without Goodbye Surfing Hello God, I really believe everyone would have forgotten about Smile and it would not have ever seen a resurgence in popularity or anything like that. A resurgence in popularity, a cultural significance at all. So, this leads me to the current stage of where Smile is, because we are very, very lucky people, and we actually get to hear different versions of Smile. Now, when we were initially planning this, you wanted to listen to Smiley Smile, and I was like, no, we don't have to do that. We don't have to be like other people, because there are two different versions of Smile that are out that are as close to being complete as possible. Brian Wilson eventually remade the album in 2004 to massive critical success, and he said, no, this isn't exactly what it was supposed to be. First of all, I'm really fucking old, but second of all, <laughs> it's a little bit more uplifting because I'm not in the same sort of mental state, and this is going to be as close as we get to it being finished, so here it is. And people lost their fucking shit over it, and normally we would cover that. However, 2011 saw the release of The Smile Sessions, a comprehensive box set of every single iota of the album ever created, all of the songs as close as they could have been to being completed, and all the little bits, if you wanted to listen to them, and it is the most comprehensive release I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, the only problems with it are the fact that nobody really knew what the finished product was supposed to be, not even Brian Wilson. And, you know, they didn't have the other elemental songs. But it's as close as we're going to get. There are very, very few things on the Smile Sessions that were recorded afterwards. I believe they used some later recordings of very, very specific songs where they literally didn't do it at the time. Yeah. And it's a fucking miracle that we get to listen to something like this today. So, without further ado... Let's talk about how we feel about Smile. Spencer, you don't really listen to the Beach Boys all that much, do you? No, I don't. <laughs> Neither do I really. I actually really love them, but my brain doesn't realize it. I really like a lot of their even more simple pop songs and stuff, and I love pet sounds, but I don't listen to them as much as the Beatles, for example. Um, that being said, when I listen to the Smile sessions, it completely changes my opinion on them entirely. What does Smile sessions do for you? Spencer. 
I guess not having like a big connection to to the Beach. I, I mean, it's it's two starkly different bands. You have the Beach Boys, who they listen Jack. They love cars. They love fucking, and they love the beach. <laughs> Sometimes all three in the same spot. But I feel like the Beach Boys for Smile Sessions and for Pet Sounds is the Brian Wilson project. If that makes any sense, it's like where where he really comes into his own as a producer. And you can just hear that because the whole kitten caboodle is up. Oh, I'm just I'm making all sorts of diegetic noise over here. The whole <laughs> just like Brian Wilson. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna get a dog in here and have it start barking. The whole like kitten caboodle, top to head to toe, is it's different. It evokes something completely different. It's some chill music for me. I mean, like it's... at its base as a musical dum dum, I can sit in a beanbag <laughs> and enjoy this one while I think of what the beach might be like. You're really onto it being a Brian Wilson project. You would see in later Beach Boy albums to come that the band would have much more influence. They would be much more subdued. Pet Sounds and Smile were Brian Wilson projects. Even when he was the band leader, it never really came across that the band wanted to do Pet Sounds. And I think in retrospect, a lot of people really feel the way you do, that this could have very... This could have easily been considered just a Brian Wilson project. And yeah, it is incredibly positive sounding music. It's very strange. Sounds like a completely different band other than the vocal harmonies. And yeah, it's just a very positive sounding album. You compare it to Sgt. Pepper, Sgt. Pepper is much more, it, it feels much more drug infused than this. You can really tell that the entire band other than Ringo was on LSD. With this album, <laughs> Now that it's actually cobbled together and they were able to finish it, you can see what they were trying to go for. And you could see just whether or not you think the experiment succeeded or failed. It was unlike anything ever tried before, or in my personal opinion since. Now that it's fully released, most people love it just for the sheer fact of all of its history. I'm one of those people. I fucking love the Smile Sessions. I listen to all of the little bits and pieces, and it just completely fascinates me. But there are some people out there that say some of the charm was not hearing it. Some of the charm was the fact that it was never in existence, and the fact that we can hear it now kind of takes away from all of the weird shit we heard about. Oh, for sure, for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, because it was endlessly hyped, and if, you, if you're setting your expectation of the holy grail of music, it's like if Half-Life 3 came out tomorrow, I probably wouldn't enjoy it. It's it's just been ruined <laughs> for me. It's, it's, been, it's been held up as this unattainable gold standard that, just, that we never got, you know? Right, and I really feel like for the average person, you can talk up, smile, but at the end of the day, they're going to listen to it and just think, it sounds like something from the 60s. It's not as revolutionary as a lot of music we have heard since. That might, in fact, be the first words that came out of my mouth about five seconds in. Well, it sounds like it's from the 60s. And honestly, I think that Brian Wilson was onto something when he said, it depends on who releases an album first, the Beach Boys or the Beatles. And that will that will tell which album is considered a masterpiece and which one is considered schlock, essentially. If it, well, Jack, if 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 Smiles had came out first, do you really think it would have eclipsed that stage of the Beatles' career? In short, uh, uh-uh, no, not even close. Okay, it's what I thought. <laughs> and in retrospect, Brian Wilson himself said his exact words were: "Sergeant Pepper would have kicked our ass." He knew that he was not going to top the Beatles. And once again, when Smile was a legendary album that was never released, people could wonder, would it have been better than Sgt. Pepper? Even though Brian Wilson said no, people out there really wanted to believe that this was a masterpiece that would never be unearthed. So yeah, there is a little bit of some, some something lost with Smile listening, listening to it nowadays, knowing all the hype behind it. I'm somebody who really, really enjoys the historical context behind a lot of albums, though. And... I still personally think that it is an amazing album. It's leagues better than a lot of things I've heard recently. Uh, it's it's something that really inspires me personally as somebody who actually has access to a lot of, you know, uh, digital audio work faces that let you record things like instrument at a time. A lot of indie musicians record the exact same way Brian Wilson was trying to at the time. And I think it was just an album that was way ahead of its time. Sgt. Pepper was, but I think Smile was even more out there. And 
I don't know. It's something that I think about. Do I love this more than Sgt. Pepper? I don't think I do, but I really, really respect what was going on in this album. And yeah, it's just a treat that we get to listen to it. I completely agree. The problems with the Beach Boys and more specifically Brian Wilson go on way past Smile. And it's a much darker turn than what we usually talk about. We usually just say, oh, isn't it wacky how all these creative minds are doing things that just either don't pan out or put them in debt. Isn't it just kooky? Isn't it just kooky? Uh, the rest of the Beach Boys history is much less kooky, and it's actually something that you know a ton about and something you've actually covered before in your other podcast, The Cock and Bull. Episode 10, I think I mentioned it towards the top of the episode, unless Jack edits every chunk of my voice out up until right now. I wouldn't <laughs> blame you, Jack. I wouldn't blame you. Yeah, this is an individual show. It's just me. But yeah, episode 10, uh, my brother and I go through the complete story of Eugene Landy's life and how he was a absolute parasite upon the Beach Boys. Uh, it's I would highly recommend it. It's one of my favorite ones that I've researched. It's one of my favorite ones just because of how much it dives into music in general. I love hearing music history, and it's a topic that fascinates me, specifically with Brian Wilson and his toxic, toxic relationship with Eugene Landy. Uh, in fact, Jack was the one that recommended that episode as a topic. So we've come full circle. Here we are. Here we are. We we are just constantly inspiring each other to keep going and talking about <laughs> mental illness and causing fires. Uh, we're good. We're good influences. Unlike Phil Spector and Father Beach Boy. What's his name? I do, Murray I Wilson. Do <laughs> Father Beach. But fa Mr. Beach. Father Beach. <laughs> Oh, I do think you are out to kill me creatively, though. I, I understand it. <laughs> you're going to Freaky Friday my brain into, a, into a, a young man. And when you're in jail for homicide, about 50 years from now, don't say I didn't see it coming. After they find you, a famous actress shot in the head, me, Phil Spector, will be like, <laughs> it wasn't me. Honestly. No, that's not gunpowder on my hand. What do you mean? Two shots to the back of the head is a very common suicide, officer. <laughs> He allegedly shot her. Yeah, I write crime beats for newspapers, Jack. I know what allegedly means. <laughs> this has been Blunderphonics. Thank you all so much for listening in. This has been Jack Durback. I've been Spencer Faust. Brian Wilson is a hack fraud. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>